We're going to make our way to Joshua 24. I'd love for you to take your Bible and turn there with me as we study it together tonight. Hope you've had a good day. It's been a good weekend. I want to say just a word about that, about this church, you know, brag on this church a little bit. It, it's really, it really amazes me, and it's a, it's a pretty neat thing to see stuff that's happened this weekend. Uh, the, a, lot of, a lot of you have done work behind the scenes, and so many people came yesterday to work and to do things around the building, and I hope you noticed some of that. Some of it's not very visible, I guess, but some of it you may have noticed, uh, folks who came up and did a lot of work yesterday for a number of hours. We appreciate all of you who came and those who organized that. It, it just it really flowed well and was well done. We appreciate that. And then today, the HEPA thing I heard went very well, fed 100-ish, I think. Um, I'm not sure how many of those were HEPA residents, but a, a lot of them were. And uh, so thankful that our group could go there and with Ms. Graham and, and the other residents there to HEPA. So, so that was good. And then this afternoon, the food and clothing. I didn't hear final numbers on that. Does anybody know a final number on how many? 145. That's, that's awesome. I think it was 120 last year, wasn't it? So from 120 to 145 um, different family units. And that's just a blessing. And so many of our folks uh, worked on that. Uh, I know many of you were up here every day this week. And, and then just we, we thank you. Uh, for, for your involvement in that and people who came this afternoon to serve as well. So it's, it's pretty neat. I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for this church and the ways that you're reaching out to people in their area. So may God continue blessing uh, this congregation. So thank you for that. It's been a good weekend. And um, hope you have a good week. Good Thanksgiving week. If you're going to be traveling this week, be safe. I think this is, I've always heard this is the heaviest travel week in the entire year. I don't know if that's true or not. I think it is. So if you're going to be one of those hundreds of thousands of people, uh, millions of people, I guess, traveling this week. Be safe, and I hope you'll come back safely next, uh, next week. We meet Tuesday night, so remember that. I meet Tuesday night at 7 here. Won't have the Wednesday night service, so, but we'll look forward to seeing you Tuesday if you're in town. Let's look at jo- Joshua 24 for a little bit tonight. Joshua 24, last chapter in the book of Joshua. And Joshua is the book that tells about Israel's going into the land of Canaan to take the land. And that is the continuation of what we read in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And uh, right here we've got this, you know, Joshua's kind of a segue book between the Exodus, leaving Egypt, and and then Judges and 1 Samuel that tell about the, how they set up government, sort of a system of government once they got in the land, first Judges and then later Kings. So Joshua tells how they took the land. Now, in the book of Joshua, you've got, You know, you've got Moses who dies at the end of Deuteronomy. Joshua takes over. They go into the land, the story of Jericho, the city of Ai, and so on, and all these these cities and places. They went through the land, and they they conquered it. They they didn't do everything that they needed to do, and that's going to come back to haunt them later, but, but they did take the land. They did divide it up into different tribes and all that. And so we come to the end of that, and and probably the most famous verse in the book of Joshua is where Joshua challenges them, you know, and he says, choose you this day whom you're going to serve. And he talks about that for a second. And then he says, you remember what he says? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 
That's Joshua 24, 15. Most off-quoted verse in the entire book. And, and one of the most familiar, I guess, in the Old Testament. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Let's look at it for a minute. And I want us to, we're not going to read this entire chapter, but I do want you to think about what's going on here. And you've got kind of an outline in the back of the bulletin. And that may help you as we walk through it a little bit together. But I want basically you to get a gist of what's going on in the chapter. And then I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking to you about how it applies to us uh, as we normally do. And where this is going to go, just listen to this as we read some of this tonight. Um, where this is going to go is Joshua's talking about idolatry. He's talking about gods. And he's, he's saying, you know, you've got to make a decision. You've got to make a decision if you're going to keep serving these other gods or if you're going to turn your back on them and, and, and serve the only true God, Yahweh. You've got to make up your minds on that. And, and, he's, and I think, honestly, he says, you, you, you really, really need to take this seriously because I'm not sure that you can do it. And he, we'll look at that in a second. Look at, look at the text, though, Joshua 24. Again, I hope you'll follow along in your own Bible there. Let's look at the first three verses, and, then, and we'll skip around some. But he, he gathers all the tribes of Israel, Joshua 24, verse 1, to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Tyre, the father of Abraham, and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Now I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, and I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Now, all the way down through verse 13, it's just history. <coughs> History's important. Let me summarize it. He just tells the people, that this, is what, this is how you got here. This is how you got right here, where you are right now. You didn't get here on your own. And, and this is something that God has been working on for a long time. He goes all the way back to Genesis 12. We're in Joshua. He goes all the way back to Genesis 12. And he talks about God choosing Abraham and giving him Isaac and Jacob. And then he kind of he rushes through some history there with you know, 400 years of captivity in Egypt. And he, he goes to that exodus. And he talks about the wandering in the wilderness. And, and he's just really rehearsing this story for them, and they knew it pretty well. But that's what the first part of the chapter is about. It's just, and we'll come back to this, but when you want to talk about idolatry, who's your, who's your, who's your ultimate priority? Who's your God? We don't talk about that. You, you need to look back and think about what God has done for you. That's where it all starts. If you think that your money or that your intellect or that your looks or that your athletic ability or that your, I don't know, whatever it is, your nation... If, if you think that those are the reasons you got where you are, then those things are going to be related to, they might be your God. See, So he starts off by saying, okay, here's what God has done for you. This is how God has always been working with you, and he brought you to where you are. Okay, then look at verse 14. We'll read a couple here. He says, you got to choose. Verse 14, now therefore, fear the Lord. And serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Choose whom you're going to serve. 
<clears throat> now, a couple, couple of things here. They, I don't know if you knew this, I, I guess in my mind, I would think that by now they, they don't have these other gods that they're worshiping. You know, they've, they've been through, I mean, these people have been through the Exodus and they've seen God working all these miracles and they, they've, they've seen his walking with them and punishing the disobedience and all that. But apparently there were still, there were still this, I don't know, this uh, worshiping other gods. They still had these gods that they had brought with them. And he specifically refers to two regions. The gods of Egypt, they had come from, and the gods of the Amorites. Well, actually, he specifies three. The gods of the Amorites, that would be the gods of Canaan where they were now. And then he goes all the way back to the gods of the land where Abraham was from. So those three areas, beyond the Euphrates, over there in what we would call, what is called today, like Iraq, that area. That's where Abraham lived. Gods from there, or gods from Egypt, that's where you just came from, or gods of the, of the land where you are. I guess it would be naive for us to think that they could have lived in Egypt for all those years, and now they've been in Canaan for some time, 10 years or so, and for it not to have rubbed off on them, for them to have maintained this exclusive worship of, of God. But apparently they had picked up a lot along the way, and they hadn't discarded the gods of Egypt, and they had picked up some new ones in Canaan. And Joshua says, you've got to decide. You've got to put those gods away and serve, and serve the only God, or choose them. You can't do both, which is a pretty common refrain in Scripture. You can't, you've got to make a choice. You can't serve the gods of the world and God. It's one or the other. So that's a common theme. We'll come back to that. But choose you this day. So make this decision. I'm going to apply that to you and me in a minute. But let's make sure we understand where Joshua goes with this. The people answered. This is a good answer. Verse 16. Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt. In other words, we understand what you just said. He brought us out of the house of slavery. He did these great signs in our sight. He preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord. He's our God. Sounds good, doesn't it? Okay, so make choice. We choose. We choose God. We know what he's done. And we're going to serve him because he is our God. Notice Joshua's response. Some people, in fact, Hubbard, um, what's his name? Robert Hubbard says that this is the most shocking statement in the book of Joshua. Verse 19. Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. I mean, this is kind of weird, isn't it? Suppose you know, I got up and challenged you all to serve God and everybody stood up at the end of the sermon and you said, we have chosen God and we're committing our lives to him. And I said, sit down and be quiet. You can't do it. So I don't want to hear it. I don't believe you. You'd probably, you'd probably feel a little bit insulted. You know, well, great, he asked us to do it, and we decided to do it, and he told us, you know, drop it, we, we can't do it. This is a shocking statement. I don't think that's what Josh was doing. I don't think he's ultimately saying, I don't think you can do it, but he is wanting them to understand, in your present state, you can't do this, because he knew that they apparently had some of this divided attention. They had some of these other gods that they were worshiping, and, and worshiping God along with them, like God was 
Yahweh was, was one of many to them. And, and Joshua says, you can't do it. You folks are not ready. He's a holy God. He wants them to understand. You'd think they'd know this by now. But he wants them to understand that you don't put God on a shelf with all these other gods. It's not the way it worked. God will not allow that. He will not allow it. So if you serve God, take all the other gods off the shelf. If you don't serve God, then don't put him on the shelf because he doesn't go there. You know, he's not going to be there along with the others. I mean, it's a pretty simple thing. It's, it's incredibly rich, but it's, it's pretty simple. You are not able to serve the Lord. This is verse 19, for he is a holy God. So he says God is holy, that is, he is other, he is apart from us, he's sanctified, he's different, he's unapproachable, lots of adjectives there. But, and then he says he is a jealous God. God won't tolerate other suitors. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Of course, Joshua doesn't mean that in any kind of ultimate sense. He, God will forgive, but he won't forgive idolatry as long as you persist in idolatry, right? So he won't forgive, he will forgive you. And if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, and he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. So they come back after this challenge. And, and I, again, I think some of this dialogue is, is put here. It occurred so that we could see you know, their commitment. And Joshua says, wait a second, you, you sure about this? You understand what you're getting into? And then they come back and say, yes, we understand and we're going to do it. We will serve the Lord. Then 22, Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses. This is, a, this is the way they did these um, covenant renewal ceremonies back then. They would have a challenge. They'd have a response, a commitment to keep the covenant. Then you'd have witnesses. And instead of calling on other witnesses, Joshua says, you're going to witness against yourselves, against one another. There's kind of this mutual kind of witnessing going on. He says, you're all here, you're all making the same commitment, and all of you are going to be witnesses against each other. You're going to keep one another accountable to the commitment that you just made in front of me and ultimately to God. See that? So you're witnesses. Instead of calling on another, like an, um, a, dis, a disinterested party over here, he's calling on them to witness one another. They say, we'll do it. We're witnesses. And then again, look at this. I mean, this, this permeates this chapter. Verse 23, then here's what you've got to do. Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Again, that's kind of shocking to me because why do they still have these gods? At some point along the way, it looks like they would have figured out they need to get rid of these before now, doesn't it? This is, I mean, this is a long way into the journey. This is, you've already been through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and, and this generation at least was, was, was uh, they, were, they were adults by the time of the book of Deuteronomy, which the book of Deuteronomy was... Uh, had a lot to say in it about worshiping God and putting away idolatry. And now you've come to Joshua in 10 years or so. They've been conquering the land and learning and growing, and they still have these gods among them. So it, it's kind of shocking to me that, that this is still the case. He said, you've got to put them away. By the way, I don't know what exactly that looks like. It could be some sort of uh, graven image, which would be a violation of the second commandment, you know. Uh, but some, some sort of... Some sort of uh, image that they had that symbolized the gods they were worshiping. And incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And he wrote the words in the book of the law of God, took a stone and set it up under this tree. 
uh, that was by the sanctuary, by the tabernacle, and he said to the people, this stone shall be a witness. So this is an important and solemn ceremony. And then he sends the people away, every person to his inheritance. So they went back to the area that they were supposed to live in. And then Joshua dies. That's the end of the chapter, end of the book. So, how do you apply this? I think this is a, we've wrestled with this here before, and it's something we need to keep doing. How do you take a text to an ancient Near Eastern people who were living in a land where there was idolatry that we maybe, maybe we think of when we think about ancient peoples or some parts of the world today where they have, they have graven images made out of wood or stone or gold or brass or whatever. And they actually use those as some sort of holy relic and, and worship them or worship what they represent. So how do you take a text that they were worshiping, I mean, you know some of these names, maybe worshiping El, which was more of a generic term for a god in Canaan, or worshiping, you've heard of this one many times, Baal, B-A-A-L, or the Baals, you've heard of that one. Uh, Molech, heard of Molech, child sacrifice. I don't think they were doing that, but Molech was worshipped in the land of Canaan. Chemosh, uh, Asherah. Anyway, you got a, you got a ton of them. You ever, you've been tempted to worship Molech lately? I've never seen, I've never seen it in this church. I don't know. Maybe some of you are private Molech worshippers, but you know I haven't seen it. Or Chemosh. And I doubt any of you are bowing at the throne of Baal, you know, lately. So this is, a, this is a difficulty when you're taking a text that is talking about things that happened 3,500 years ago and trying to apply it to our culture today, to our situation. So, but we're going we're gonna to spend a couple minutes doing that because we've we got to do it. This is a theme, by the way, that's all over the Bible. I mean, it's worded in such a way here as to deal with something specific, the gods of Mesopotamia, that's over in Iraq, or the gods of Egypt, or the gods of Canaan, those three areas. That's how it's worded. But this theme comes, comes up in every part of the Bible, wherever they are. When they go down to Babylon later on, it's going to be an issue. In the New Testament... Um, the, the Bible talks about idol worship. In fact, Colossians 3, Paul says, you know what idol worship is? It's covetousness. It's greed. That's, that's idol worship. You're worshiping another God if you, worship, if you worship things. And so he specifically applies it to covetousness. Uh, James in James 4 says that you are adulterers or adulteresses if you become a friend of the world. Lots of, lots of language, like 1 John 2.15, where John says, don't love the world or the things that are in the world. If anybody um, you know, loves the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So you've got language like that all over the place. So this is a principle that applies to every Christian in every era, in every place. But the, but the rub here is, what about us? What about 2017, Hoover, Alabama? How do we apply this text? There's this pretty good book, written by the guy I mentioned earlier, Robert Hubbard. It's a, a commentary on this. And I like the way the commentary is structured because it deals with the text. And then it, the, the last section is, some of you have seen these before, but the last section is contemporary significance. It's like what we want to do with the Bible. You want to deal with the text. What does it mean? What did it mean when it was written to the people it was written to? But then you, you want to say, okay, what does it mean to us now? What's the contemporary significance? And so I'm going to quote him 
a little bit as I talk to you about applying this text to you and me. Because he talks, he has a really good discussion about what a God is. Nobody in here is tempted to worship Molech or Chemosh or Baal. And we're not tempted to carve some sort of an image and put it in our living room and bow down before it, most likely. Hubbard quotes Martin Luther, though, when he says that a God is, listen to this, I really want you to get this idea and think about it and pray about how you and I are tempted to to violate this. But Martin Luther said that a God is anything that you rely on or trust in. I think that's a pretty good definition to a point, but probably not sufficient, though, is it? Anything that you rely on or trust in, because there's a sense in which you and I rely on and trust in one another and people in our family, and we rely on and trust in this church, for example, or we rely on and trust in certain people, but we don't worship those people. So I think Luther's definition is good. It just doesn't go far enough. It's not quite specific enough. Hubbard goes on in that same paragraph, and he he qualifies it. He says, Luther, of course, did not have in mind ways in which we exercise a normal, healthy trust or reliance on things, we, might, we rightly rely on and trust other people to advise, support, and help us with all kinds of things. And he goes on. But here's something else he says. Next paragraph, he says this. It might be God if we willingly yielded excessive authority to direct our lives. For example, we may follow its advice or demands without even considering whether God has anything to say about the matter. It might be a God if it in any way plays a more significant role causal role in our lives than God does. That was what Israel did that so seriously offended Yahweh. They trusted other gods instead of Yahweh. They granted those deities a large role in their lives and ceded them authority over them rather than Yahweh. In short, the danger of polytheism is that we may be completely committed to the lordship of Jesus Christ, yet still rely on and trust in other things with such a commitment and passion that makes them other gods. We may worship them, give them uh, This is important. We may worship them. That is, we may highly value them. We may give them offerings. That is, we spend money on them. And we may serve them. That is, we devote time and energy to them. So think about those three things for a second. What do we... Let's do, you know, introspection here. What do you and I highly value? What do we spend money on? And to what do we devote time and energy? Where do we spend our time and energy? Where do we spend our money? And what do we highly value? Think think about that, how that plays out. What do we highly value? What do we spend our money on? And what do we spend our time and energy on? When we answer those questions, if if you start thinking there's something outside of God that, you know, being being honest, there are things that, I mean, I value that a lot, and I do spend quite a bit of money on it, and it takes a lot of my time and energy. That's at least pointing us to, to a certain thing or person or ideology or whatever that's flirting with taking some of the glory away from God. See that? Okay. Now, I want to I wanna mention to you four things. And Hubbard mentions these, all right? So I'm, I'm getting this from him, but... But I think that's pretty good. Okay, here, here are four possibilities for you. Just think about this on your own, but here are four possibilities. One is, Hubbard says, 
that in our current American culture, where we live now, in this place and time, here are the four that he thinks and that he sees tempt us. Number one, the ideology of materialism. What is materialism? Materialism, depending on where you see that word, but here, here's what it means. It teaches that all human needs may be met by material things. So materialism is that, you know, this, this, what you're searching for, there's something material, something tangible, something you can buy that meets that need, that, that'll fill that hole, that void, something material, tangible. Happiness and satisfaction come through financial success, possession of material goods, and pleasure. The more the merrier states this God's Torah concerning money, possessions, and the good life. Leisure activities, travel, hobbies, recreation, sports, and the like as spiritual retreats in its honor. The ideology of materialism is the consummate televangelist. Its prime icon is the media ad aimed at convincing unbelievers to convert to consumerism, Hubbard writes. And you think about that. The sole purpose of the commercials that we have on our television, the purpose is to convince you and me that we need something that we don't or that we deserve it. That's taking it to a slightly higher level. We need it and we deserve it and you ought to get it. And if you get it, it will make you fulfilled. But then as soon as you get it, you feel this moment of euphoria, you enjoy it, and then what? The next model comes out. They come out with the iPhone 10, and you've only got the 8. And what happens? Hmm, I really like the 8, but the 10, quite honestly, would make me a little bit happier than the 8 does. You know, and then you get the 10 and then come out with whatever is coming out next, next, next year. I mean, this applies to so many things. It's not just iPhones. It's just stuff in general. And, and I think we're naive if we suggest that that doesn't influence us. I mean, I think most of us think, yeah, you know, it affects people. It affects other people. You know, lots of Americans, it, I see it all the time. I see it affecting people all the time. But the problem is, you know, we can be naive and think, well, I'm not susceptible to that. And I guess this made me think earlier of, of my reading this Joshua chapter and thinking, you know, I'm surprised that they've still got these gods. Kind of surprising. But is it surprising that They've lived in two different lands. They've lived in Egypt. Many of these people had lived in Egypt. They were younger, but... And they've lived in Canaan. Isn't it naive to suggest that those two cultures had not influenced them to worship, or at least to entertain the possibility of worshiping another God? And so wouldn't it be naive for you and me to suggest that we can live in American culture, which is based, the very economy is based on consuming more and more and more, right? And for that not to rub off on us. The God of materialism. He says there are three, three things about it. It claims to satisfy basic human needs and that promotes trust in a lie. The commercials 
and our very economic system, it is lying to us, and we are believing it. We're buying into it. And there's not a person in this room who's not susceptible to it. We have bought into it to a lesser or greater degree. We think, even subconsciously, that if I get more, I will be happier, I will be more fulfilled, I will reach whatever that I'm trying to reach, that thing is, I will get it if I just get more. We buy into that, and we believe a lie. That's what this system does to us. Second thing he says, finding our happiness fixed in things will reduce our dependence on God from total dependence to only partial dependence. And so we believe about God. We, it's not like we turn our backs on God. I still believe in God. We still believe in God. And God supplies my most important needs. But stuff is also important. It's part of my happiness. It's part of my contentment, part of my fulfillment. And so we believe a lie, and then it reduces our dependence on God from total dependence to partial dependence. You see, and that's, that's dangerous stuff here. The third thing he says about this materialism, consumerism, is that it eats up financial resources that might otherwise be invested in the kingdom of God. Uh, we spend money on stuff we don't need, money that could be invested in serving people, investing in the kingdom. This is a, this is a big deal and certainly deserves more attention than just a few minutes here tonight. But, okay, here's the second one he says. Materialism number one. Number two, and this is closely related, he says, but um, is the God of convenience. This will kind of shock me. I don't know if I've, I've read, you know, you've read stuff on idolatry and read people write about it. I don't know if convenience has made any of the lists that I've read before, but it's interesting that he puts it here. He says that the, uh, the ally, the close ally of the God of materialism is the God of convenience. Americans place a high value on convenience. The defining attributes of this God are omnipresence and omni-availability. No worshiper should have to travel any great distance to reach a sanctuary. And he talks about, he goes on and talks about convenience stores and, and, and all that. You know, I couldn't help but think as I was reading that, man, I mean, we love convenience, don't we? One of the things I notice first when, when we leave this country to go to another is, why don't they just do it like we do it in America? You know, why can't I go down to the corner store and get a, get a soda? Why can't I? I mean, it's, we, we bow down and worship at the altar of, of convenience. I'm convinced, or he convinced me. We, um, you, have you ever noticed this about, about yourself? You get frustrated because... You wait in line at the grocery store for seven minutes and you're frustrated because you didn't get through in two minutes to buy stuff that's been packaged for you that you're going to take home and unwrap and eat. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of shocking when you think about it, about just... This idea, and, we'll, and we'll do a lot for convenience. We'll spend a lot of money for convenience. We'll, go, we'll, uh, we'll do a lot for convenience. And it's something to think about. Here's the, here's the third one. It's the God of me, the God of self. This is, he, he tells the story of Narcissus. Narcissus, the God, you know, the self-centered, looks into the, water and he sees his own image and falls in love with himself and and from which we get the word you know narcissistic or narcissism 
which is a you know, hyper interest in self. The, the God of, and, and maybe, maybe all these kind of relate to this. It's this, this God of self where, where we are, are at the center of our own world and we see the world, and this is hard not to do. We see the world in how it relates to us and, and we kind of let everything revolve around us, you know, the, the God of me. We got to be careful that we don't buy into the universe revolving around us. In New Testament and Scripture, it, it also it always has an other-focused ethic. Look to God first, look to others next, and put yourself last. Become a servant. I mean, it's the very basis of Christianity, if I understand what Jesus teaches in the New Testament. The last one is this, and you know, you can talk about any of these for a while, but the fourth one is the God of nationalism. He says, the inclusion of this God on my list, and I don't, didn't look to see when this commentary was written, but it's fairly recent. The inclusion of this God on my list may come as a surprise, especially to readers who live in modern Western democracies, but history shows that the influence of governments on their Christian citizens is often subtle and almost imperceptible and not always healthy. This off-overlooked God takes on as many forms as there are nations that demand loyalty from their peoples. By nationalism, I mean the claims of a nation to being uniquely great and especially virtuous, that is, godlike, and hence to feel justified in demanding the unswerving loyalty of its people. It seems that those words are pretty, pretty relevant to our own time and place. Um, because there's a fine line between what we might call patriotism and when it, if we're going to make a distinction between the two, between what we would call patriotism and what is nationalism, when it puts the God of America on a pedestal and it becomes, well, it puts America on a pedestal and it becomes a God and we turn to it for our identity and for our fulfillment. There's nothing wrong with taking some sort of, I don't like the word pride, but I don't know of a better word, here, taking some sort of pride in one's country so long as we don't value that system or political party over God himself and the kingdom of God. God's kingdom ought to be our priority, right? There's so much to be said about that. He says quite a bit, but we don't have time. And and, but I want you to just to think about this and reflect on it. You may have a number five. You may swap these around. You may put something else at number one. But there are a number of things that we could talk about here and maybe should. But I just want you to notice, and we'll close on this note. When you, when you look at Joshua 24, what he's saying is you are affected by your culture. It's, you're affected by it. So the question isn't, am I being influenced by American culture? That's not the question. The question is, in what ways am I being influenced by my culture? And how might I respond to that to, to keep these things from becoming idols to me, to, to us? You know, Choose you this day whom, will, whom you'll serve. Put away those gods. Put them away. Get them off the shelf. Because God is a holy and jealous, all-consuming God. If you're not a Christian tonight, we, we do invite you to uh, put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, put him on in baptism. Turn away from your, your past and just make him your Lord and make him all in all. That's what he wants to be. That's what he deserves to be. If you're ready to make that confession, we invite you to come. Or if you need prayers tonight, we invite you to come. Let's stand and sing this song.